Let's just move on to Final Jeopardy. The category is nonsense words. Just write a random series of letters, any letters, as long as it's not a word, you will win. And as I am reasonably certain that most of you I like your chances. So, let's see what rare gems our contestants have mined today. Kathy Lee, let's see your nonsense word. Fibblefib. That's not a nonsense word. That's your co-host on the Today Show. Believe me, that's nonsense. Where's the vowel? What is that? And your wager. Okay. You wager that you'll be passed out in an hour. You're darn tootin', partner. I am not a cowboy. What are you doing? All right. And Tom Hanks, you, uh, you managed to give yourself a pretty nasty welt there. Let's see what you wrote. And you broke your pony. You, you see what happened was... Okay, again, that, that's a pen that's not a microphone. It's not a microphone. Burt Reynolds, where, where is Burt Reynolds? What, Burt Reynolds' poet, it just vanished. He was never here, Trebek. <laughs> yes, he was. No, he wasn't. Yes, he was, but let's just see what you wrote. Eldrain. Wow. That is a nonsense word. Judges? Yes, yes, the judges agree. Fantastic. I'm, I'm so very happy in this moment. Well, I thought you could use it, friend. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. You're welcome, Alex. Let's see what my friend, Sean, wagered. And my boss. <laughs> I'll drain my boss. Okay, that's it. Show's over. Good night. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. That's French for, hello, you're listening to this podcast. My name is Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, champion of the cube, Maddox. How's it going, Andy? Good. You got that 3-0 of that, uh, of that cube draft we did on Wednesday? Wednesday. Well, you don't have to act so surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm congratulating you. Hey, thanks. If it I was surprised, good. it'd be way different. My tone would be like, you got the 3-0? And between us, Anthony... We, uh, we went a nice even three and three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Did you go 03? I went 03. Yeah, my, my deck did not work. I played badly, and uh, yeah, I did a bad. I, you know, I feel like it's if I had asked you, apropos of, of nothing, you would have said that green is maybe your favorite color to play in cube. Is that, is that true, you think? Uh, that's probably true. I definitely have an affinity for green. So do you think that somehow, by removing green from this cube we played, you oh. like saw through the matrix all of a sudden and just became like leveled up as a player like without green there to skew your valuations of cards you just played optimally like a true spike that's a that's a more compelling story yeah let's go with that <laughs> more compelling story than you just drafted well and played well and, and got i think i just played is it as if i was playing green and just took really greedy expensive cards and uh got pretty lucky yeah you played very skillfully against me Ooh, that's drafted not a even deck true. i couldn't beat. Uh, i made so many mistakes but uh yeah. Don't matter. Uh, Worm Wormcoil Engine turned out to be an extremely, extremely critical part of this deck, so I think opening that pack two or pack three uh, was, was a big stroke of luck. 
I have feelings about that card. That one has been in and out of my cube as much as any other card probably over my cube's lifespan. And sometimes I'm like, oh, this card's fine. It's not even that good. It's six mana. Like, you just counter it or whatever. And sometimes I'm like, wow, my deck can't beat this card, and it just costs six mana. They just cast it, and I can't win, and it's not fair. I feel like it's very swingy. Yeah, in a lot of cubes, I feel like it's just sort of like such a, like, what's the way to call it? Just like a a stat monster. It just does so much. It helps you on so many board states. You just, like, slap it in any deck, and the lowest way overperform. In this deck, I will give it credit because I really was leading into every aspect of how you could abuse it to yes, get you a built around value. Because I answered your Wormcoil Engine a number of times and it did not matter. <laughs> Turns out, Wormcoil Engine, every turn, hard to beat. It's a lot of worms. It's a lot of worms, friend. I was even sitting there, I had a uh, Declaration Stone in my hand and you were making all those worm tokens by cycling through that Wormcoil Engine and I was like... This is going to be great. At some point, I'm just going to deck and stone all of those worm tokens because they all have the same name. What? Oh, really? Is that how it works? Yeah. Declaration yeah, of Stone exiles a creature and all creatures that share a name with it. And those are all just worm huh. tokens. But uh, that didn't even matter. I, I, I couldn't even survive enough to... I had an answer for all the worms, and I still couldn't win through that board state, even with all of them gone. So we're actually going to start off the episode with a pack one pick one from the cube in question. It is a greenless cube made by a friend of ours in our playgroup, James. And then, Anthony, we kind of, uh, I think we have a bit of a potpourri episode planned where we're going to talk a little bit about a couple different subjects, maybe nothing too too overplanned, just kind of see where the discussion takes us. Let's dive into that pack one, pick one, if you're ready. Are you ready to go on? I'm ready. I will read the pack, and then Anthony will enlighten us with what you would pick if you wanted to 3-0 the draft. The pack is Miscalculation, Icker Wellspring, Galvanic Blast, Karn Scion of Urza, so Karn with Pants, God Pharaoh's Gift, Fiend Hunter, Thirst for Knowledge, Seal of Cleansing, Sensei's Divining Top, Irrigated Farmland, Pentad Prism, Abraid, Teshar Ancestors, Apostle, Palladium Mirror, and Shivan Reef. Anthony, what are your top contenders from this pack? So I'm probably going to be at least a little bit influenced by the fact that we just drafted this cube, and it's hard to have a, not have a lot of uh, confirmation bias. The way that I drafted it previously was I sort of looked at the cube, uh, thought... Well, I thought two things. One, aggro seemed to be not extremely supported, so it felt like I could do some fun, wacky stuff. And also, that's, like, I think a reasonable approach to take to a cube you're drafting the first time is, like, lean into it. Try and do the thing the cube seems to be trying to tell you to do. So I started a little bit greedy, just drafting some, like, expensive stuff. If I was going to take that same strategy here, God Pharaoh's Gift kind of stands out, but I I think it's seven mana, um, and not being something you can cheat out with a lot of the uh, effects that do interact with artifacts means it's still not quite getting it there for me. So I think I'm more likely just to start with something that's going to be safe and and effective, like uh, Galvanic Blast, Miscalculation, or Abrade. The other one that stands out is Karn, just because it is a a Planeswalker. It's sort of a value engine. It's going to be good in most decks, but it might actually be less valuable than just a a good removal or counterspell. The the top cards for me out of this pack, by a pretty decent margin, are Miscalculation, and I'm going to throw Sensei's Divining Top up there too, and maybe that's a misevaluation, but I, I agree that an efficient, flexible spell is a perfectly fine first pick here, and I really like Miscalc a lot. I have it rated higher than Galvanic Blast and Abraid, but I'll, also maybe I'm underestimating how much more important artifacts are in this environment. This is an artifact-heavy cube, so maybe that's a misevaluation on my part. And I think Sensei's Dividing Top is just a very open pick. There are a lot of artifact synergies in this cube, and even absent artifact synergies, I think Top is a very, very good 
card selection, grindy component, especially in an environment where aggro is underperforming. And I agree. I looked at this list and I said, I do not want to be in aggro. And it seems like basically every player at the table did. I didn't see an aggro deck that anyone was playing and was just watching Eidolons of the Great Revel. Oh, God. Eidolons of the Great Re- Revel. Yeah. Revel. It's just a regular English word. <sighs> yeah. I was just watching Eidolons of the Great Revel wheel and other like aggressive red cards. So I'm on miscalculation or Sensei's Dividing Top. But I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about Karn because I'm not sure if you noticed in the Discord, but I was posting earlier today, not apropos of this pack, just apropos of my general experience playing Karn, that I think I am really low on this card these days, and it is it is on the chopping block in my own cube. I remember when it first was spoiled, people were a little bit incredulous about it. They were like colorless formatic card that just generates insane card advantage that you know it's like a it's like a course of portal on crack with this like inevitability and people i even saw some people that were basically complaining that it was you know a huge color pie break to give every color this amount of card advantage any deck can have it now and i was initially quite high on it as well you know it's a i perceived it as a you know a format of planeswalker that would generate card advantage that any non-aggro deck would be happy to have and then in my in my cube crucially i really liked that with any kind of artifact synergy, it does become quite powerful. I think the minus two in an artifact matters deck is very, very potent. And I I avoid the kind of very all-in micro archetypes that we've talked about on this podcast before. Like, I don't like having a blue-white blink deck or a red-black aristocrats deck in my own cube. But I really love the kind of emergent sub-themes when you can have, you know, a control deck that has a little bit of something else going on. And so in my cube, there is kind of an artifact matters, like little like a vein, like an undercurrent of a, of a theme. And so a card like this that is good in any deck, playable in any deck, and then really shines in those Artifact Matters deck, I think is uh, is would be a high pick. And I took it very highly in this cube draft as well, this, this draft of the Brea cube. And it really underperformed for me here, and it's been underperforming for me in my own cube for a long time. And ultimately, I just think it's... If you are not in an Artifact Matters deck where that minus two is making a 3-3 or a 4-4 reliably then it's just the worst possible card advantage engine. The fact that you don't get to take the card you want. You get the card that is least useful to you. And then you have to like alternate uptaking and downtaking to get cards you want if you can protect it. It's just really, really, really slow. And I've discovered there are so few board states that I'm actually happy to have Karn in. And the ones where I am happy to have him, it's like a state where things are very stable. Either I'm way ahead or we're kind of in a board stall. And any format of Planeswalker should be great in a board stall. So that's not really a big check in his column. Yeah, it, I definitely, I don't have hard debt on it, but I've definitely played with it plenty of times or seen it played against me where it's like, four mana, draw an island. Cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just yeah. feels pretty ineffectual. Yeah, some of those times where the board was really ineffective were playing against you, where I was like, I got a Karn, that should be good, except it's not, because I can down tick by two to make a 2-2, two, two, or I can uptick to draw the worst card off the top of my library. It's just... It's really been suffering, I think. And I've been trying to hold Planeswalkers to kind of a high bar in my environment because I I like them. I really like the play patterns they lead to. But I do think that a huge abundance of them has an overall warping effect. Like any individual Planeswalker, I think, opens up choices and actually makes games faster, generally speaking, and more inevitable. And you have a bunch of Planeswalkers running around, though. It gets a little bit bit clogged up. And so, yeah, this one's going to come out of my own cube. And I'm not that high on it out of this pack either. So... Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm going to take miscalculation, I think, and be pretty happy with that start. I think you've actually talked me into a braid uh, over Galfanic Blast. The fact that there are a ton of artifacts that you want to be able to destroy, I think it's worth an extra mana to uh, have that flexibility. 
Yeah, I will say something I felt was that I didn't have as much removal as I wanted in my deck at the end of this draft. I haven't looked at the actual as fan or density of removal in the cube, but uh, it definitely didn't feel like there was a huge amount of it going around the table. And so I can see a raid being a totally reasonable start. We're both being very disciplined today. It's an eat your vegetables kind of pack one, pick one. It's an eat your vegetables kind of pack. Yeah, that's true. I mean, God Pharaoh's Gift is kind of a, a greedy thing. You could, you could go you for could, if you, you wanted to. You could get there. Yeah. I will say I'm also, curious. Iker Wellspring performed extremely well. And honestly, I could say that about a ton of cards that were in this deck. It was just... So, I mean, the deck was all about Artifacts Matters. I had Emery, Lurk of the Lock, Goblin Engineer, Goblin Welder, Retrofitter Foundry. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of these little things that just sort of make the deck work, like Iker Wellspring giving you Sacrifice Fodder and fueling your other cards. And... I've seen that sort of archetype in a lot of cubes, and I'm sort of glad that I fell into it, because this was the case where it really felt like it was I was rewarded for doing that. The The thing that was fun was also the thing that was optimal, so I really appreciated that. Yeah, your deck looked fun to play, and as you were stopping me with it, at least, it looked really fun. So. It was extremely hard to play, though. Like, this was honestly one of the first times I've, I've really played with Arcbound Ravager, and figure out like what the optimal way to move counters around, or... How much is it worth keeping a sacrifice outlet with uh, Pia in order to avoid getting, you know, my Wormcoil engine deck fadened or all these kinds of interactions were, were pretty hard to think through. Yeah, I really like or playing even, Ravager, though. you know, it's playing my, uh, which one? One of these mocks is Chrome Mox and not exiling something just so I could get Metalcraft and get a discount on Emery. Lots yeah. of fun lines. That does sound like a lot of fun. So uh, I think you, you kind of did it. That was that was a good draft. Maybe just never draft it again. And there you go. You've just you've done the perfect draft of this cube. <laughs> you can retire on top. Sorry, James. No, it's a good cube. And thank you, James. I mean, James didn't actually send it in. I just wanted to do a pack one, pick one of it because we played it very recently. But uh, but yeah, thanks, James, for making the cube. I guess it was, I had a good time, even though I, I got kind of bodied. The games were some of the games were close. I had some decisions I, I made, so that was that was nice. But uh, yeah, nothing really came together for me. And I did, one of my opponents, my opponent in, in round three, the other O2 player, had built a, a KCI combo deck, a Karker Clan Ironworks combo deck, which, for those of you that aren't familiar with the KCI modern deck, it is, it was, until there was bans to uh, sort of target it, one of the most weird, convoluted rules interactions kind of combos that I've ever seen successful in a, in a major meta, where, you know, the fact that you can announce that you're going to pay for the ability of Chromatic Star, and then simultaneously sacrifice two different artifacts and then scrap trawler triggers itself and something else simultaneously and gets them back it's this weird little kind of condition and it requires a lot of pieces and i think my understanding is the success of the modern deck was that a lot of the pieces were also just fine and playable and affected the board state and so it was like it kind of ground out a little bit of value until it eventually turned them all into this convoluted infinite mana infinite everything combo but yeah my opponent drafted a kci deck and in our game three of match three managed to actually pull off a, a KCI combo with, like, six different cards. And I was very impressed. Drew their whole deck, made infinite mana, and killed me with a walking ballista. <laughs> I thought they were supposed to kill you with a pyrite spell bomb. No, you're thinking a bomber man. Uh, it's possible. I don't think that the modern KCI deck played pyrite spell bomb. I could be wrong about that. Let me see if I can look it up real quick. Tweet it, Andy, if he's wrong. So I had another question about this cube. So it's a four-color cube. We don't have green. Does that either change your evaluation of either starting with colored cards like do they feel more open uh and how how does it also influence your decisions about fixing i looked at this list very briefly before we drafted it and my only takeaway was the one you mentioned which is that i really did not want to be playing aggro which has a lot of knock-on effects like you kind of insinuated and so i took the two mana mana rocks very highly and was hoping to basically play a greedy lots of expensive spells lots of mana rocks kind of deck and 
Other colors just weren't really open at my seat, so I ended up just being kind of straight blue-white. I got a, a pick three Demonic Tutor, which I thought was egregious, but then just got past no black cards either direction, and or at least none that I really wanted to play. Like, it felt weird. So I do take note of the fact that a pick of any card in a color is more open in a cube with only four colors as opposed to five, right? If we see this out to its logical conclusion to a one-color cube like we've done already before, then we see that all the cards are effectively the same color in a one-color cube. And in a two-color cube, you can very easily draft a deck that plays both colors in the cube. So it's effectively 100% open. So so yeah, I think that the, a color pick is a little more open, but it's hard to quantify that and actually decide when that's going to be a tiebreaker over another pick. Like, if we had this exact same pack we just talked about and the cube had green in it, and I knew that, I would still be on miscalculation. I don't think it would change any of my evaluations of a card in this pack. The, the lands are maybe more interesting to me, because it's it's going from, you know, if we look at Shivan Reef, uh, blue-red land, um, if we were a normal cube, it would be one of the ten color pairs that you could play. So it's like, you know, assuming we're, like, drafting the hard way, we're going to draft exactly the two colors that are open and we're not going to be splashing. There's basically, like, a one in ten chance that it ends up in our deck if we first pick Shivan Reef. Here, it's down to one in six, which is actually a huge, huge difference, right? Yeah. No, you're right, it is. Um, I think it does make a big difference. Yeah, I, I think Irrigated Farmland, honestly, is the is the other, like, the third card I'd be looking at out of this pack if you asked me to, like, reach for a third. So it'd be Miscalculation, Top, and Farmland. Farmland because it is fetchable. There are fetches in this in this environment. And, and yeah, I, I do think the lands are better picks here because yeah. of the reasons you just mentioned. What I can't tell is, is, does that mean, you know, all these things are scaling not in the same linear way. So does the fact that we're more likely to be in those color pairs, but also in general, it's just going to be easier to, you know, get the fixing you need potentially, or any one of your colored cards ends up being more flexible. I don't know how those things actually scale, and if that means that uh, relative to each other, colored cards versus fixing shift in value. Yeah, I haven't played enough color warped cubes to say for sure. I mean, we've drafted the Jund cube before, we've done a pack one pick one of that on this show. This is a greenless Brea cube. We've done the mono black cube. But, but yeah, I haven't done it enough to have like a good intuition about how much these things should change. Or if, to your point, they kind of just stay in balance. Like, yes, it is more open to take a miscalculation. Yes, the fixing lands are better. But all these things kind of just even out a little bit and don't end up really having an impact on the rankings of a given pack compared to a normal environment. I'm not sure. Hard to say. My, One last I card I want to pick your brain on here. Pentad Prism. What what do you think of Pentad Prism in an environment like this? It would have to... I'd have to be sold on it. I, it was played against me, and it was slightly scary, but not that much. I, I don't know if this is an environment where you're looking to have just, like, one explosive turn, or, you know, again, how important the fixing is. I think, yeah. actually, you know, it goes up in, up in value if you do have these sacrifice outlets as well, because being able to get sort of a burst of speed and then sacrifice it to your Goblin Welder uh, is pretty valuable. I've been thinking about it for my own cube again. It was in a very early version of my cube, which I had it in there basically without any thought. I think at the time it was in the MTGO Vintage Cube, and I had seen LSV take it highly and say it was good. But, you know, he was drafting, like, Storm decks mostly and, like, you know, unfair stuff, and my cube was not that. And so eventually it came out for that reason. But I think you know, Anthony, I'm always trying to basically see how relevant I can make tempo in my cube. I really think tempo is a very interesting component of the game, and... I, I don't like cubes where tempo becomes irrelevant, which this is not an environment like that, certainly. But we have drafted environments where tempo doesn't really matter. What really matters is just having more powerful cards than your opponent and resolving them and that kind of stuff. And, 
you know, I think the more important tempo is, the more important a card like Pentemprism becomes and the more valuable it could potentially be. And I've been considering putting it back because allowing any deck to drop a five drop on turn three is pretty scary. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it'd be a lot more powerful in, in your cube specifically. I mean, yeah, just imagine dropping Nissa who shakes the world on turn three. We've all seen what happens. You have so then. few forests at that point, though. <laughs> True. Yeah, no, for sure. I So I, I've been thinking about it. It might make its way back into my cube because I'm interested to see what people do with it. That is our pack. Thank you, James, for building the cube and letting us draft it. If you want to have your cube on Lucky Paper Radio, email it to mail at luckypaper.co and include your pronouns, include how you want to be credited. Tell us a little about your cube and the history behind it so we can have that context going into our pack, and we will do it on the air. <laughs> We've talked before about some of these environments that are missing whole colors don't actually oftentimes feel that different than a regular environment. And that was kind of my experience here. Like I couldn't point to any decision I made differently knowing that green was not in the environment or whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, it felt like kind of a normal cube. Like I said, my deck did not work out so hot. I wish I had aggressively taken fixing more. And I, I kind of was like, as I was picking these two color rocks, like there's signets and talismans in the cube. And I was, as I was picking those mana rocks up, I kind of assumed, like, oh, all these mana rocks are going to be fixing. And I got to the end of the draft, and I just happened to not have any mana rocks in red or black, basically. Like, I kind of had mostly blue and white and, like, maybe one or two in different colors. And so I just couldn't really rely on them to fix my mana outside of blue and white. And then I was left with not that many lands to fix my mana. And so, yeah, I wish I had just taken fixing and... Big, powerful spells, I think, is what I would have done in this cube in hindsight. The other thing I mentioned to, to James, the cube owner, is that it felt like the a lot of the sort of synergistic combos between specific cards were head and shoulders above some of the things you could do in the rest of the cube. Anything else that was kind of not a little combo. So you had the kind of welder deck, and I think that seems like a very strong deck here. Not just because you did well with it. I think seeing how all the games played out, the sort of relative lack of tons of removal and interaction meant that you could compile a little engine with Emery and Welder and just like that engine could then give you value. You didn't have to really worry about somebody just dismantling that and, you know, taking it apart and being left with a bunch of Icar Wellsprings in your hand. So I think that Welder seems really good. Somebody had drafted the Stoneforge Mystic and Batterskull combo, which in this environment felt very, very powerful and potent. So that would be very appealing to me. I'd be basically looking to try and optimize those kinds of things instead of just taking bread and butter good cards, which is what I kind of ended up doing this draft. And I had like a weird blue-white deck that didn't really have a plan. I really appreciate that, actually. Um, like, yeah. drafting a deck that is more than a sum of its parts is a lot of fun, and it makes actual draft experience very dynamic because every pick you take really changes your decisions down the line. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and that's very much how my own cube is designed as well, where there's a lot of these sort of like little overlapping build-arounds to try and create that really dynamic draft experience. What's cool here is that even though this has some of that, it's still at a much, much higher power level. So whereas if I tried to throw in that, that sort of welder package into my cube, it would kind of just be head and shoulders above the rest of the power level and would kind of, you know, require everything to be reshaped. Here we get to play with that, like, same kind of synergistic thing, but just in this uh, separate bracket. The space where I see that I'm curious about, but seems a little bit harder to make work, is the artifact side of things seems very well supported. There's also a fair amount of Enchantment Matters cards, um, so I'm looking at like Archon of Sun's Grace, and All That Glitters, and there's a couple others, which I think that's also very cool, but the pieces don't quite seem to all overlap as much, so it, it seems like 
you sort of really need to have your your deck drawn in the right order and be able to cast your spells uh, and and not have your opponent have the the critical piece of removal at the right time or at the wrong time for you. So I'd be curious if in that Enchantment Matters world, how much more could be done to sort of push that in a way where it just sort of fits together a little bit more neatly. I was playing Shark Typhoon in my deck, which I, I love that card. I think it's great in this environment. I think it's great in pretty much any environment. And this was a place where the environment is slow enough that my default assumption was that I'm actually trying to cast Shark Typhoon and then turn all of my signets and stuff into also sharks. I'm not just trying to cycle it. Whereas in like my environment, which is quite fast, I think by far the default mode is cycling Shark Typhoon. But I had one particular match where in one game I cast Shark Typhoon the enchantment and got totally punished by not realizing that Nahiri's downtick could remove enchantments. I had shortcutted Nahiri's downtick to just be exile, like a tapped non-land permanent. And I was like, oh, great. Shark Typhoon is never going to be tapped. This is fine. But it can just exile enchantments without needing to be tapped. So that was punishing. And then the next game, I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to you know, get tricked by that again. My opponent didn't have Nahiri in play, but I knew it was in another deck somewhere. And so I just cycled Shark Typhoon and made a big 6-6 to block their attacking batter skull and then i got hit with the k command in the second main phase and dealt the last two damage to my shark and it's like i feel like both times i played this card i I misplayed it and and got owned for uh for playing the wrong sides of it and i really like that about those that that feeling of of when you sort of shortcut a card and like read it as a you know we do this naturally because it makes sense like a lot of the cards are just worded in different ways so when you can shortcut things that's not all bad. There's a reason your brain is doing that, but it feels right. so bad when that happens and turns out that you made a critical error. Yeah, I mean, I'd be a much better Magic player if I just made myself read every card as soon as it was resolved and on the battlefield Maybe and, like, really resolved. think about it. But, <laughs> but of course I'm not. I'm like, yeah, sure, I know what that card does, and then I'll cast my Shark Typhoon. Okay, I'll down take Nihiri. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, God! No, God, please, no! 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 So yeah, I mean, I liked I, I liked the modal cards because I, I like feeling like my losses were somewhat, in some cases, attributable to my to my mistakes. You you got to see me make a kind of very carefully considered play decision where I was playing against my opponent in the last round and they had a pretty strong start and were ahead on board and I had cloned their Luris of the Dream Den uh, as a means of getting a little bit of card advantage to try and stop them from doing the stuff they were doing, because I, ne- I basically had to cast my Phyrexian Metamorph out of my hand because I had no real board presence. I couldn't afford to wait for something better to clone. And, uh, and then they attacked with their Luris with, you know, as far as I knew, no tricks or anything, and I was like, I hemmed and hawed, and I was like, well, I'm behind on board, but I also know their deck gets more value out of Luris than mine does because they're playing this, like, KCI deck with all kinds of little artifacts they can buy back. And so I was like, they had nothing in their graveyard, so they hadn't gotten any, like, immediate value off of Luris. So I was like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to trade with this Luris because I-, I think it's the right thing to do. And I traded, and then they happened to have Sun Titan, and they just immediately <laughs> bought back. They would have had nothing to get back from their graveyard with Sun Titan if I had not traded with Luris and, uh, and swapped off Luris, and then they did. And it's like... I think I made the right decision there, but it feels so awful to still, to then have it be, you know, in a very real sense, the wrong decision. You just couldn't have known it was the wrong decision. Yeah, what's worse, making the mistake or walking into a trap? I don't know. It's very hard to say. That's not true. I think it's much worse to make a mistake than it is to walk into a trap. If you walk into a trap, you walk into a trap. But maybe I was supposed to read into that and be like, why would you attack with your Luris? Luris is more important to your deck than mine. You're ahead on board. I mean, I guess if you're ahead, you're happy to trade, but his clock was really slow at that point. But... I don't know. Just got eaten up by it. So it goes. You ended up putting together a multiplayer cube list. What uh, what, what inspired that? 
I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I started to put... Let's not call it a cube list. Let's call it a list of cards that might go into a cube. It is literally a cube list. It's on the cube website. It says multiplayer cube right here, 398 card legacy cube. Uh, you, and you posted it on the Discord and said, I made this cube. All right, fine. Well, I mean, we've been talking about multiplayer uh, and specifically how what we enjoy about Commander and Cube sort of fit together and what we would actually do uh, if we were to design a multiplayer cube. And either some combination of me willingly deciding to eat our own dog food or just, uh, you know, falling down a mental rabbit hole. I just started to get curious about how really would I resolve a lot of those decisions and what would I actually want to include in a multiplayer environment. Assuming we're not doing specific rules like the having commanders or doing, you know, special packs or anything like that, what kind of gameplay would we actually want to create and how would we actually just include specific cards to uh, to get that kind of gameplay? Did you have any revelations when you were putting together this list of cards that is definitely not a cube and will not be treated as a cube? It's a long way from a cube. Let's call it, let's call it 40% of a cube. Uh, so the, the biggest thing is, and this is obviously just a matter of taste, it's like a lot of what people enjoy about multiplayer is the fact that the environment is necessarily slower. So if you're playing constructed multiplayer, it means you have time to do the weirdest and wackiest things you can and assemble these sort of insane board states. I'm more interested in can we push a multiplayer environment to still be uh, extremely strategic where you have a lot of opportunities to make lots of decisions that matter, uh, which means you don't just, you know, play out your first half of your combo and then see if somebody has a wrath or not. And a big part of that is one of the most interactive parts about uh, magic, as we talked about, is combat. So I tried as much as possible to sort of explore what are all the different combat-based mechanics that have ever been printed. It turns out there are a ton of them. Um, turns out. It shouldn't be pretty, too surprising. Pretty core to magic. Pretty core to magic. Did lots of regular expression searches on Scryfall for everything that, you know, triggers whenever it attacks or something else attacks or someone has dealt damage. And trying to include those, but more than that, not just saying, well, let's put every card in here that says whenever you attack, do blank. Trying to actually make getting into combat not just uh, what the cards tell you to do, but what's actually optimal. So the other side of that was just trying to limit, especially like sources of card advantage as much as possible outside of that. So if you want to get ahead in terms of cards, you're going to need to be attacking with your robber of the rich or your uh, infiltrator or what have you. I like that idea. So it's not just that you're trying to encourage combat blindly like at all costs whatever the impact you're basically saying well the thing that's normally good kind of by default in a multiplayer game is just playing defensively building up your resources generating card advantage so what if we limited all of the things that allow you to do that to an actually aggressive strategy and kind of introduce this tension right exactly um do you know you have two copies of retrofitter foundry in this i just noticed that as well like i said very very rough list i'm considering it twice as much as any other card it's a good one i like it a lot I feel like there's a weird number of Planeswalkers in this list. What was your thoughts with what Planeswalkers you would include versus not include in a, in a, in a multiplayer cube? Well, Planeswalkers, I think, actually get a lot less powerful in multiplayer, right? Because I think so you too, just yeah. have so many other players that can attack them, and especially, you know, just pushing like lots of different kinds of evasion is something else I'm trying to do. So these aren't really super well-considered decisions at this point, but... Generally, just trying to uh, choose planeswalkers that can either interact with different opponents and different permanents in different ways. So I think like this is actually a cool place for Oko, um, especially where it's multiplayer without commanders, so you don't have the drawback of turning someone's commander into an elk, and then they're kind of at a loss depending on what their deck is. And, you know, can reach out and sort of interact with diff- different opponents without just taking over the game, because I think that because you have so many more opponents, it's just much more limiting. Another one was Bastery, again, which is just a a card that I think sort of really rewards you for attacking and is something that's worth protecting. 
Um, were there any ones in particular that stood out to you? No, not specifically. I was, I guess maybe Fraley's Llanowar's Fury jumped out at me as like kind of a weird five drop to include. It's like the only Green Planeswalker. So maybe that one, I could hear what you're thinking behind it is. Yeah, that's pretty dubious. Uh, I think maybe it stood out to me a little bit just as I was, you know, digging through Scryfall searches as something that uh, can do a lot of different things, um, either generate a little bit of card advantage or interact with different kinds of permanents or start this sort of value engine making elves. Honestly, in a way that doesn't look too terrifying, so maybe it'll survive a little bit longer uh, because your opponents don't see it as a huge threat. And and frankly, also, it just being from a commander product, uh, I definitely have some associations that, that maybe are not productive here. Sure. And then very few colorless cards I noticed. Was that conscious? Uh, artifacts were the last thing I looked for. <laughs> the list was getting thick at that point. Sometimes definitely it do could like push that. definitely could push artifacts more. I was just curious. For example, like there are very few colorless cards in my battle box. We have not really talked about battle box on this show at length, but I found that uh, you know in, that's an environment where, to, in, in brief, you have access to any color of mana you want. You're, you're both playing five colors. And it's not a drafted environment. You're just playing randomly off the top of a deck, basically. And I found that it was very hard to find any artifacts that were just the right power level because, obviously, when you're in R&D, you consider a colorless card should be you know, worse than the same options in different colors to give the colors identity and a reason to be in them. And so the colorless cards that you, know, you would otherwise put in a battle box, there's just very few that happen to be of an appropriate power level, no matter what you're targeting, I think, because... There are there's so much there just tend to be worse than the cards of colors in that same slot. Yeah, for sure. And then I think on the other hand, there are some artifacts that are kind of strangely just sort of busted. Yes. Uh, so another small thing I noticed is there were a couple of mechanics I was a little bit surprised um, just by sort of the the breadth of card design that was not actually there. So a couple including uh, Myriad from a couple commander sets ago when basically whenever you attack it, you also get a token attacking every player, which is just sort of like an obvious way to say, well, let's mitigate this fact that it's better to be on defense because you can only attack one player once, but everybody can attack you, right? I, I was just surprised, like those cards were pretty underwhelming just in the way that they were costed and what their effect is. Uh, they don't seem super powerful. So I wonder also maybe if that's just my evaluation is a little bit off on them and they actually just because they reverse that sort of very nature of multiplayer in such a fundamental way, maybe they are much more powerful than they read. Um, similarly, even a I lot of the Encore cards... I can name off the top of my head a creature with Myriad. I can name Blade of Selves, which is the equipment that gives a creature Myriad, but I can't think of another one just off, off the dome that has Myriad. There's a lizard. There's a wolf. Uh, sorry, not a lizard, a serpent. Yeah, spirit. Can't even picture them. <laughs> Can't even picture them. Yeah, I mean, so to your point, like, I yeah, they don't stand out for me. I've never heard of any of these. I mean, I guess Herald of the Host is the one that I, for some reason, rings a bell for me, but I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Encore as well. A lot of, there are a couple extremely powerful Encore cards, and then some of the commons and uncommons, uh, this, this was the mechanic, it's like um, Unearth, but again, it targets all of your opponents, so it just scales with multiplayer better. But yeah, there's just not as much like that middle ground that felt like this is really appropriate for what I was looking for as I, I was hoping. At some point, they're going to print a card that just says, if you would target an opponent with a spell, copy that spell for all opponents. If you would attack an opponent with a creature, put a token into play attacking all other opponents. Like I'm waiting for the spell, like the artifact, the legendary artifact that just says multiplayer is now single player, basically. Like everything gets copied. Yeah. We'll get it at some point, I think. And so maybe the last area that I tried to target is, again, like I mentioned one of the things that can be sort of frustrating if you're, or, or makes it hard to actually like 
play multiplayer in a in an optimal strategic way is that especially if you're playing with very cheap wraths there's not really a way to play around it you know you have to start getting things in the board you have to start trying to kill your opponent if that's what the, the environment is about so just sort of trying to set up your board and then having everything destroyed sort of incidentally because someone says okay let's reset the game isn't super satisfying so i i looked as much as possible for sort of more selective ways to interact with multiple permanents at the same time because like we've talked about uh one for one removal is also pretty bad because if i destroy one of your creatures and i'm spending a card we're basically both behind compared to the other two players that weren't involved in that interaction um, so looking at cards like Pyroclasms that can, you know, deal with all small things at once, or yeah. Languish, things like Hex that destroys six things at once. And again, that's it's it's a little bit of a difficult space that's not like exactly one category of cards, so it's a little bit hard to search for. But I, I'm really curious, you know, it'll be a while before this is a real cube that we actually do any playtesting of, but really curious if that can actually accomplish the goal I would, I would be interested in. I wonder if you would consider Radiant Flames and perhaps some of the other Converge cards, but Radiant Flames especially, I think, is one of the more interesting scalable, scalable like earthquake effects. Yeah, I could see that. Another thing that's a little bit of a challenge is uh, Gavin specifically mentioned this in Solely Singleton um, that they experienced when t- playtesting Commander Legends is that because of the nature of the slow gameplay, if they tested it without the commander identity rule, people still just tended to play basically all the colors because the, the gameplay was just slow enough. So I, I think I would be interested in this multiplayer environment to try and solve that two ways. First of all, just trying to make the environment as fast as possible, knowing it's still going to be very, very slow compared to basically any two-player format, but still speeding enough so that even if it's not that you know someone is playing this hyper-aggressive deck that's going to end the game right away, you still need to be focused and uh, can't afford to stumble and need to be able to be prepared to put up early defenses. And then the other thing is just trying to rein in the fixing a little bit. So even if ramp can still be uh, a valid archetype, just including you know Arbor Elf or Llanowar Elves rather than Birds of Paradise, just so that's, that sort of like free fixing is not also available to uh, someone that's playing a ramp deck. And again, I'm not I'm not totally sure that that strategy would work, but it's something I would be interested in testing. The last thing I wanted to ask you is you said you were basically conceptualizing of this cube with a, a slightly different normal draft format. What is the draft format you landed on for this as a default? The default that I'd, be, I'd start with is, so being multiplayer with four players, um, I think, you know, that's fairly accepted and it's a good number of people for a multiplayer game. And then it, from that, it just sort of makes sense to say, well, let's just do the draft with four players so you don't have to have eight people together like that. I, I think it's just uh, works out pretty nicely. And then what I think actually works best for a four-player draft a lot of the time is just doing four packs of 11 or 12 rather than three packs of 15. It just means you don't end up wheeling the same pack four times, which gets kind of tedious where you're like, well, here's this again. So yeah, I think that's where I would start with it. I like adjusting the the number of packs and the number of cards in a pack when I'm drafting with different numbers of people to try and basically keep it roughly so you have twice as many cards in a pack as you do drafters, more or less, you know, in, in the rough in the rough ballpark. But definitely not, you know, 15 cards is basically three times as many cards in a pack as you, or four times as many cards in a pack as you have drafters. So I, I, I agree with that assessment. I, I, like, I like that way of thinking about it. It's one of the little unsung great features of Cube. If you're, if you're playing with booster packs, which is awesome, I love playing limited, but a four-player draft is just always going to be a little bit awkward. But when we're building our own packs for a cube, we have full control over all these details and can really make the most of it. No 10 or 8 card packs available at the LGS, unfortunately. Although, you could just grab the first uh, first couple commons and put them in the garbage and <laughs> go from there. 
take that commons. <laughs> you had mentioned when we were talking about what we're going to talk about on the show that maybe we could talk about designing a cube around what's not present. What, what did you mean by that? So exactly a couple things that I mentioned here where I, I think that if you're building a multiplayer cube, sort of your gut reaction in a lot of ways is going to be saying, well, what really works well in a multiplayer cube? Like what ends up being more powerful? And let's get as much of that in here as possible. So you might just say like, well, card advantage is great because it's going to be slower. You don't have to worry about being on defense much. So spending the first couple of turns ramping and drawing cards is going to be great. But I think that it's, that's only one way to go. And, and the other option is actually saying, well, we can actually try and make other things optimal by excluding that. So if we actually want to make combat relevant, uh, making that really the only source of card advantage or the primary source of card advantage, I think is extremely effective. Even though it's kind of counterintuitive to say, well, I want to put the stuff that's kind of bad in the cube. Uh, I think it is really a way to uh, to accomplish that goal. So yeah, you're saying basically in some ways it makes more sense to not think about your cube as an environment where you've like handpicked specific things that you do want players to do and that you do want decks to look like, but instead think about the things that you don't want players to do or that some restriction is going to prevent you from allowing them to do it and let the rest kind of fall where it may. And just like thinking about it in that sort of negative space can can help you conceptualize that better. And rather than saying, well, I just want to have, you know, the best thing, the things that perform the best from these cards, you can really think about that negative space too and say like, well, I want the ramp to all not also fix you and wrath shouldn't be absolute unless they cost, uh, you know, six mana or greater defining those negative spaces, I think, can, can be a really powerful tool. You're kind of just choosing restrictions for yourself, and I, I agree. I think that's kind of the bones of every cube card pool, right? All of, all of the people that are building various kinds of, you know, power-maximized cubes, the best way they'll describe their cube is like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm playing a legacy or a vintage cube, but here are the cards that I've, you know, cut for being too good. Like, I'm not playing Mind Twist, or I'm not playing Mana Drain, or whatever cards they're not playing, because that says a lot more about the power level they're trying to aim for rather than trying to somehow abstractly describe, well, it's a vintage cube that is, you know, trying to be faster than normal or whatever. You just say, well, yeah, but I'm not playing, you know, Mind Twist. And so I think that's actually maybe a good clarifying way for people to think about the environments they want to shape is like, what don't you want people to be able to do? <laughs> like, start there. Start with what you don't want to happen and, and work backwards. Or, you know, think about what you do want to be viable, what you do want good strategies to be, and figure out what are the things that actually make that ineffective and sort of what, what are the natural predators of the strategies that you do right, want exactly. to encourage that will just kind of rule them out immediately right so even in my own cube um basically like hard removal kind of starts at three mana so like i have murder i don't have you know all those cheap ones that no one cares about right uh, go the for the throat and, uh, and doom blade and you know there's there's flexibility in that restriction so i do still do include dead weight and um Possibly others <laughs> that are sort of like dead more flexible Dead weight and there. different dead weight. Disfigure, ulcerate? Disfigure, exactly. Ulcerate, uh, ulcerate not currently, but great point. So it doesn't mean like you can't still interact on turn one. It just means that you don't just have these sort of silver bullets that, that outrule a lot of other strategies. Yeah. Uh, do you want to play it? Is this interesting to you? I would definitely play. I mean, I'll play any cube once. And and before people say like, oh, you're just saying that, I mean, I have played the quote unquote misery cube once. So I, I will play any, any cube once. I will definitely play this with you if you want to do it. The other thing that you and I were talking about this week is we were kind of shooting the shit on the Discord and somehow the idea of building a cube where you started with one life came up and 
we were kind of talking about this as a limitation. I, th I think actually this kind of grew naturally out of the conversation around your multiplayer cube where someone was asking like, well, if you want to encourage aggro, why not make the starting life total 15 or something? We were talking about the various pros and cons of that. And eventually somebody was like, you know, screw it. One life cube. Like what happens there? Eventually, I think that was me. It could have been you. So yeah, I think, I one... think the natural reaction that I had was, well, someone suggested 15. And then I thought, well, 10 actually makes the most sense. You know, in a normal two-player game of Magic, you have 40 life to start with. And when we have twice as many people, we shouldn't double the life totals. We should actually be chopping them in half. So we still have 40 life among the four players. And then I realized even that's not quite right, because then you still have to deal 30 damage in order to win. So really, your life total should just be a little bit below 7. Uh, so you still have 20 damage to deal. And then if we're just going to seven, yeah, why not just start at one? I wonder if you could, how complicated would it be to say, you know, you have 21 life and seven of it belongs to each of your opponents. And so, like, <laughs> you you basically lose if you've taken There's seven from all your opponents. There's only commander damage. Yeah, basically. I wonder, I wonder if that could possibly be. Great for name. players who love spreadsheets. Great for players that love having, like, nine or 12 different combinations of dice on the table that normally knows what they are, or if they're indicating anything, or if they just kind of fell and landed there. It's it's, it's good to keep track of all, that's all the, a, all the that's accounting. That's a really great point. I think that having the paraphernalia and lots of different kinds of dice that do different things is a legitimate appeal to the game for a lot of players. Myself, not entirely excluded. I allowed you to play your Chulain Druid EDH deck against me once and just sit there and kind of count how many lands and spells you could cast in a turn and... Then you asked me, will I scoop to a time stretch? And I said, no, keep playing until you, <laughs> until you show me how you're actually going to win. You, you won. You won that game of chicken. Yeah, you, you just conceded because you didn't want to play two more turns. That I had each to play two more minutes. turns. Then the only way that I can actually win with that stupid deck is by putting 100 mana into Helix Pinnacle. Is that Which true? I, I, I mean, you could have just, just attack, right? That's also complicated. Anyway, I, I agree. I think that's kind of fun. I have You've played against my Jeskai Ascendancy deck, which is guilty of the same thing. Uh, I have, in that deck box, I explicitly carry around basic lands to keep track of floating mana. I have a little copy of Glorious Anthem to keep track of the number of times I've triggered Jeskai Ascendancy that turn. Like I've got all kinds of uh, ridiculous stuff in that, in that box, because accounting can be fun sometimes, so that is definitely an appeal for some people. Again, me not entirely excluded. Anyway, One Life Cube. My initial inclination which is my inclination with most things was to just try and maximize this idea as much as possible and figure out okay one life cube so all things that deal one damage are very good obviously because it is say your opponent loses the game and my first hope was like can we jam all of those in and then also have enough ways for your opponent to not die on their turn zero if they're on the draw to survive and actually you know life gain becomes incredible because now healing sab says quadruple your starting life total and all of your opponents one damage spells are not so great anymore now they have to resolve four of them we kind of pretty quickly came to the realization that there are so many ways to kill your opponent on turn one if you're not restricting the cube in that sense and so few ways to not die i mean you have your nourishing shoals you have your gemstone caverns plus a life gain spell you have uh gosh i mean i guess some of the zero mana counter spells to counter their lava dart on turn one but there's really very few ways to not die in an environment like that so you were talking about some other cards how would you go about trying to set a power level for a hypothetical environment like that if we were going to actually make the one life cube how would you decide where to draw the line like how soon is too soon to kill your opponent that's a great question i mean my my goal if i was actually to follow through and try to make this ridiculous cube would be to see how much strategic complexity can we actually add. So 
like the obvious thing that's broken about this format that we've ruined about magic is if you just cast a lightning bolt, you win. So the entire game is just devolved to who wins the coin flip and gets to go first. And like you said, there's not enough interaction to actually just allow you to have shock in the format, I don't think, and still have some level of interaction. So I think just dialing in what the actual power level would be would just take a tremendous amount of exploration and just what are the cards that actually, like, how many responses can you actually have? And can you balance sort of, like, the, the threats and interaction? So even a question of just, like, is a 1-1 one, one with no text for 1 too powerful? Are there going to be enough inter- points of interaction? And I, I don't know. <laughs> I think maybe you might just have to say, well, if you have a 1-mana creature, it has to have Defender or something like that. Do you, would your first inclination, obviously, you know, we're just completely randomly hypothesizing about this, this environment. This but, is a terrible idea. You shouldn't do this. No, but this if is, you were, I think this is interesting. I think people <laughs> this like is a to thought hear, experiment. This is not an idea for a good cube. I think people like to hear the thought process behind some, I mean, this is in some ways a very distilled version of the same question people have to ask themselves about any cube they make, right? Which really, ultimately, a lot of what cube, like power level, I think comes down to is by what turn could you reasonably expect to be dead, right? And in a cube that's lower power level, probably is going to take a little bit longer. You're going to have more opportunity to draw your interaction, to cast your interaction, to stave things off, to mount a sort of defense of your own. And obviously, as we established, if we were to just run all of the absolute most powerful cards in the cube where everyone starts with one life, then probably, what, three-quarters of the cube would be cards that could just kill you on turn one with, like, a quarter of the cube dedicated to some very fringe, desperate strategies to not die on turn one. And so that would be a cube where you're just dead on turn one. So would you initially operate on the assumption you should have any burn that could ever go to face at any mana cost? Would that be something you'd be avoiding entirely? Or would you say, like, once we get to five mana, we can have just, you know, something that deals damage to an opponent? Uh, my gut reaction is it's going to be hard to design this environment anyway, where it goes beyond like turn three or so. So I'd be comfortable, at least for an initial sketch, uh, starting with something like Zap, which is three mana, deal one damage to our creature or player, draw a card. Because, you know, when your opponent is dead, it's fun to draw a card. Yeah, very important. Just to rub it in. I, one of the things I initially thought of as soon as we abandoned the idea of actually power maxing this cube concept was having... Uh, actually a fair number of burn spells that could go face, but having them be symmetrical. And so you would have this archetype, which was basically life gain burn, where you have to gain a little life first, then you can cast your earthquake for one to kill your opponent and keep you a little bit alive, which was an interesting way to could possibly take that. How good do you think life gain actually is in a level, a, a version of this environment that we're trying to tune to be interactive? Uh, I mean, I think it would be extremely powerful. I mean, if we say like, we're going to include uh, a card that can deal one damage to your opponent... Then you say, okay, well, all of my creatures are Merit Lages. They all just deal lethal, so obviously that's crazy. But now it means if you gain two life, your life total is tripled, right? So now when you go from my strategy is I'm going to play a one mana 1-1 and this card is lethal on its own. Wait a minute, now I have to do three times as much work? You're you're the third as far from from killing your opponent as you thought you were? That's got to be incredibly powerful, right? Well, part of me wants to say yes, but then another part of me wants to say there's a reason that life gain has not been successful in any constructed format ever, or really any limited format, and that's just because ultimately if your spell is just gaining life and doing nothing else, then you are not advancing your board state, you're not changing who's favored in the matchup, like you're just spending a card to like delay the inevitable basically, right? I think it is different here because it's not just a matter of scaling like what is the clock, it's entirely opening up a uh, new space for you. 
I, like, I think that's really why this format wouldn't really work. Like, you know, it might be fun to do a couple times, but it's, it isn't really more going to be more than just like a novelty experience. Is that that interplay would, is really fundamental? That. Is Well, let's bear with me. I think that okay, that interaction let's... is really fundamental where it's like when your opponent is the aggressive deck and you get to use your life total as a resource and say, well, I'm not going to block this turn because I know if I did instead just keep my creatures alive and develop my board a little bit more, I can like set up a double block and actually stabilize and, and get ahead in a couple turns. And just completely eliminating that interplay, that whole axis for interaction, really cuts out a lot of what makes magic an interesting and inter- interactive and complex game. And life gain might bring that back, and it also just says, well, now you can play this entirely different strategy of actually planning for multiple turns where you can get hit by your opponent's 1-1 while setting up a strategy. So I think that life gain is substantially different in this context because it does something so different. Interesting. I, I, I guess I, you know, I said there are no really viable life gain constructed decks, and I guess... To take that a little bit differently, Turbo Fog is a is a deck that you can build, which is, I mean, a Fog is kind of a life gain spell in a sense. Sure. It's gaining you the exact amount of life you would have lost, which is important to that deck because then it doesn't matter how much your opponent continues to get ahead on board because your whole plan is just to fog them out for all eternity until you get some combo lock or take infinite turns or whatever. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be so quick to say that, you know, this this silly idea surely won't have any, like, replayability or whatever. Just because in all of the times we've built one of these weird cubes, you know, some of them are weirder than others, but they, it always ends up being a little bit deeper than I expected, right? Like, the, the turbo cube ended up being a little deeper than I expected, the mono black cube, the cycling cube, uh, you know, all these cubes end up having a little more legs to them than I always initially expect. And so I, I think it'd be, there'd be some things to unpack there. It would be very interesting to me. I wonder... Do you think we have enough knobs to tweak as cube designers if we sort of take all of the fundamental starting conditions of a magic game and put them on the table as mutable to make the original that original cycle of healing salve, ancestral recall, dark ritual, lightning bolt and giant growth. Could we make them all equally playable in an environment you think? Now that's an interesting challenge. I think this. I think this one life cube isn't so far off. I mean, lightning bolt is still now becomes by far right. the best you, one. You by said, a huge margin. you know, does does healing salve become the best best of the boons? And uh, lightning bolt still wins by by a mile. I think I think it just flips ancestral recall and and lightning bolt. Do you take ancestral recall over healing salve in a, in a one mana cube without seeing? Obviously, we don't have a list. We're talking hypothetically here. But what, what's your gut as to which one would be better? Uh, you might be right. It, it depends. Yeah, it'll depend on how many other ways how critical that life gain actually becomes. But drawing three cards is still very good. Maybe you got to start at four life. Then maybe the salves become somewhat reasonable. But I still feel like the white one's really lagging behind at that point. Yeah. So there were a couple cards that I, I came across. I, I tried not to fall too deep into this rabbit hole, but there were definitely a couple cards that I thought <laughs> stood out as... Uh, <laughs> why, do, why do you resist, Anthony? Why do you resist? A couple things that kind of uh, tripped me up into falling down into the hole... I've always really enjoyed Benevolent Bodyguards. This is kind of like a Mother of Ruins, but you have to sacrifice it. Um, yeah. And I these like kinds of, too. like, cheap cards, again, it's like, it's lethal on, on its own, but it just sets up so many different lines for interaction. So, you know, if your opponent plays their own 1-1 one, one on, on their turn 1, you're you're already at a stalemate, but it either then lets you, if you play your second creature, protect it from a removal spell so you can stay on board, or giving, you, giving protection to your other creatures so you can turn 2, I guess, if you play it on turn 2, uh, actually managed to attack through for lethal um similarly i'll say it of life's bounty it's one with lifelink that you can sacrifice for uh i guess it's not is it 
it is protection as well. But that costs some mana, so there's, you know, lifelink is extremely potent, but the fact that you have to pay another mana, and we're assuming this is going to be a pretty quick format, that's going to be a, a an aggressive cost. So I thought those were cool and set up some cool lines. Similarly, Spear Spewer, do you remember this guy? Is that the one that deals one damage to each player? I think I caused a draw with this card in <laughs> Ravnica Allegiance Limited, is that what it was? Achievement Unlocked. Yeah, it was. I think it was Ravnica Allegiance, or one in those cycle of, of recent Ravnica sets. So it's a one-mana O2 defender, and you can tap it to do one damage to each player. So this is something that you sort of hinted at, like, can you make life gain with Symmetrical Burn uh, an archetype? And this seems like a perfect, perfect fit where you can play this on turn one, it can block, and then if you can somehow gain life, get there. And then another one is Dual Shot. So if we're assuming that all these tiny little creatures are extremely potent, like, the, the game sort of will revolve on that axis, just being able for one-mana deal one damage to two creatures ends up being extremely potent because it actually lets you like get that tempo advantage where you can actually get more creatures on the board than your opponent in one card. I want to put uh, even... Death Shadow in this cube, too. <laughs> oh, my. That's funny because when a 1-1 one, one is lethal, you don't right. need a 19-19. Right, well, normally it wouldn't be better, but it would be good tech against the life gain decks, you know? True. It wouldn't be a 19-19, it'd be a 12-12. It's a 13-13 minus, minus your life total. I did accidentally, as you pointed out, I, you know, my instinct is, well, we want cheap uh, interactions so you can avoid dying on turn one. So I did throw Force of Will in there, and then you reminded me that it does have more text that you sometimes forget. Yeah. Force of Will. Counter-target spell, you lose the game. It's great. Uh, <laughs> very good. Turn your ca- turn your uh, Force of Will into a Pact of Negation. There's something very compelling to me about trying to make a cube like this where you would still have something resembling control. Like, I immediately just want to play, like... Fountain of Renewal or Ivory Tower, which are both just one-cost artifacts that gain you life every turn of, of differing amounts. And just the idea that, like, that is your control strategy. Like, you don't need any board wipes. They're all just a bunch of dicky creatures. You just need to, like, gain life at a faster rate than you're losing it and then play some big, in air quotes, finisher that, you know, actually ends the game or get to five mana so you can actually cast the targeted burn spell that can target your opponent's face. Every time we talk about one of these silly ideas, the, the longer we talk about it, the more I actually want to try it. All right, let's try it. Everyone write in with your ideas and suggestions for the One Life Cube. How would you approach building a cube where everyone started with one life? Where are you putting burn, if any? What kind of creatures are you going to run? You say that, like, you know, any kind of 1-1 one, one is a you know, game-ending threat at Merit Lage, but... It also seems trivially easy for your opponent to just play any number of, like, one-mana O3s, right? There's just so many of those in Magic's history that would just completely negate all of your creatures. I'm not not sure that that would be the sort of emergent strategy at that power level, necessarily. Unless you yeah, decide you could to definitely be right. Them. I mean, there's going to be sort of a metagame, both in the, in the design of the cube and, and how it would actually play out. And then at what mana cost do you put haste? Do you allow haste creatures? Ooh, well, I think if we're allowing five mana burn to the face... And I think, that'd be, I think that would be a, a lofty goal that I would appreciate. So I, I think that you could say it, at, I guess, even lower, because if you're assuming your opponent could have instant speed interaction, I think Force of Despair is another real standout here. Can't beat that. You know what I think is actually... I feel like a lot of these decks would almost play like Infect decks. I want to look at like Infect tech, where, oh, interesting. You know, where the whole point of Infect is just like connect with one creature, basically, right? Is the, the whole Infect strategy. So like those kinds of evasive and hard to interact with three creatures become potentially powerful what about uh synergistic build arounds like reckless fireweaver it's a two mana creature whenever an artifact enters the battlefield it deals one damage to each opponent i mean yeah that's a build around <laughs> that's pretty good whenever an artifact enters the battlefield you win the game so 
seems pretty good. I ah, I kind of want to play with this. I just I'm really curious to see how the life gain would end up, how good it would end up being, and and also because life gain spells are so historically underperforming and so irrelevant to competitive magic. I guarantee there are some weird ones we've never heard of that would be total all stars of this environment that we just can't aren't even thinking of because who knows lots of life gain spells off the top of their head. So I think if we set some other parameters, again, if we're assuming that the games are going to go pretty fast, drafting a 40-card deck when you're only going to end up drawing five or six cards from it, if we're being optimistic, seems a little silly. Um, so we could follow an unknown, unmentioned paradigm. We could break new ground and just say, well, let's just make this whole cube much, much smaller and draft smaller decks. Maybe similar to what we were talking about with the multiplayer cube, in order to make things still feel like normal wheels, you could do like a four-player draft with smaller packs so you still don't feel like you're just like never getting wheels either and can't really read signals. And then also I think we get that side effect of if we just make the whole cube much smaller, we can actually get a density of these like weirdo free-to-cast or extremely efficient interaction that's actually necessary to make it somewhat functional. That would be the reason to make it smaller, I think. I wouldn't start building this cube with the assumption that games are going to be necessarily fast. Because, again, every time I feel like I understand things like this, when I actually build the cube and play it, it always plays out differently than I anticipate. I think Zurin Orb would be kind of sick here. I'm doing, I'm doing, a, little, I'm doing a little simultaneous Scryfall search just while I'm talking to you, because I'm just getting invested in this. But, you know, Zurin Orb is kind of sick. It's just a zero-mana artifact that just lets you double, triple your life total when you sacrifice a land. That's kind of... That's, I think that's pretty cool. That's a good response. Yeah. By that turn one, you play your land, cast a creature... And then if everything is cheap, you just play another land. You're just gaining two life and only ever having one mana for the rest of the game. I think things would emerge from that. Everybody write in with your suggestions for the one life cube. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll fudge together a list, Anthony. I, I'm not making any promises. I don't, I don't have a ton of free time, but it might happen just accidentally. That's how these things tend to go. Thank you for listening to Lucky Paper Radio. It's been a joy to have you with us as always. We are going into the holiday season. I hope everybody stays safe and has a good time out there and doesn't travel. <laughs> Just please, nobody travel. It's not good for, for anybody anywhere. If you want to send in a question to us, we would love to take your questions. Sometimes we have weeks like this week where there wasn't anything particularly pressing that was you know on the front of mind for Anthony and I. So we had a little potpourri episode, which we're happy to do. But I'm also always curious to hear what people want us to talk about because I feel like you know, there's this disconnect sometimes between the audience and us where I'm not sure what we mentioned in passing when people are like, oh, actually, say more about that or what we've never touched on that we don't, haven't thought to touch on that people actually want to hear about. So a few questions, you send them in, we will read them on air. You can also send us a voice memo if you want. So you can record a little audio on your phone and email that audio to mail at luckypaper.co. And uh, if you're willing and give us permission, we will play that audio on air. And that can be a nice way to, to break the fourth wall and bring people into the, to the show. Come join the canon. Yeah, get in here. Anyway, thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. And thank you to DJ James Nasty for all of our musical production. And thank you, Anthony, for talking about magic with me. Of course. No, I just can't stop thinking about casting Gutshot in the one life cube, though. It is funny. The first thing that I thought of was Gutshot, and the first thing you thought of was Force of Will. And we're like, actually, hold on a sec. None of those <laughs> things work. <laughs> None of those things do it. Uh, you can still play a mountain, though. Oh, just because I know people are going to send this in. Yes, I know about Chancellor of the Dross. That is the first card we decided for sure, no doubt, had to be banned. Just turn zero win with uh, with no no interplay available. I mean, is there any way to stop that turn zero? Uh, I'll have to look at it's worded, is. but Leyline of, of, uh, of White? I actually don't know how turn zero effects are ordered like that. I mean, it says you may begin the game with it in play, so I assume that is in play before 
anybody's trigger would go off of Chancellor of the Dross, and you would actually, you know, deal three. All right, new cube idea, only turn zero effects. And I mean, on that, that would be cell. interesting, too. Like, I, I like I, I get this, but I don't know. I feel like, oh, I, I, bad news. Chancellor of the Dross does not target. It's each opponent, so the well, ley line's rude. not going to help you. I feel like that could be interesting, too. It would be like a weird kind of, uh, you know, almost like, like, poker where where like maybe you just like have an opening hand and then you gamble on who you think is going to win with turn zero effects and then you just you know lay them on the table and see who see who gets the win that's magic that's everything's magic that's what mark rosewater would say all right we're done here we close this we, we ended the show a long time ago where I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna click the stop button.